All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, we've got a great episode here, but before we do, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Permissionless. This is the biggest and best conference in all of DeFi. It's the one that we do with Bankless, who's a great partner for us. Last year, we had almost 7,000 people there in West Palm Beach. We are moving this year to Austin, Texas from September 11th through the 13th. And if you are a listener of Bell Curve, any of these last five seasons, this conference is basically custom made for you. We're going to be talking about liquid staking, the theme of this season. We've got a bunch of great panels on MEV. If you listen to the app chain thesis, we've got a bunch of Cosmos folks out there in full force. We're talking about the converging architecture of Solana, the roll-up space in ETH and Cosmos. So I would love to see all of you there. And to reward you for being such great listeners to Bell Curve, you get a special 30% off code. It's Bell Curve 30. That'll get you 30% off tickets. Click the link in the show notes and then head over to the permissionless site and make sure that you get your ticket today. Again, that is Bell Curve 30. Click the link in the show notes. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another Bell Curve Weekly Roundup. You got Michael's one and two, Vance and Yano. Guys, good to be back. It's been a while since we've got the whole gang back together. Back. It's been back. two weeks. Yeah. You can tell yeah, who's so living back. in like, uh, who's living in hot New York right now and who's living in like probably cold San Francisco, huh? Dude, fucking freezing here. <laughs> It's cloudy. It's like you gotta dress 60, like it's November. Sixty degrees. Yeah, and then in November we dress like it's just absolutely freezing. Meanwhile, Mike's going to the beach later today. Swamp. Yeah. yeah, look at this. It's like hundred and five <laughs> degrees. There's a heat <laughs> one. Hawaiian heat on. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. How's it going over there? How's New York? It's booming. Hot, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, it's booming. Trash smell. Yeah. That hot trash. Yeah. Mid-July. For some reason, the the weather in Paris I thought was going to be brutal, but it was really nice. They're, all their workers are on strike, but somehow ours is the one that smells like trash and it's just like a general <laughs> disgusting mess. But um, Paris yeah. is great. Love so it. I, I heard, uh, I, I actually read an article about uh, the cleanup that's going on in Paris right now to get ready for the Olympics next year. Uh, apparently, they hope that by summer 2024 for the, for the Summer Olympics, you can actually go swimming in the river, in the Seine. Okay. It'll be the It'd be the mm. first time that it's available for people to go swim in in a hundred years. Wow. Next summer, <laughs> let's take a little dip. Wow, that's bullish Paris. Bullish Paris, Vance. I'd be curious to get your your take. Um, what did you think of ECC? Like any big takeaways from the conference? I thought generally it was it was a great conference. Really good vibes. Um, a mixture of kind of like OGs uh, from, you know, previous cycles, but also a lot of young, you know, new kids from frankly everywhere. A lot of people from Europe. I also met a few teams from San Francisco of like 21, 22 year old kids who are just excited and kind of have that like first cycle naivete about what they're building and what they're going to do. And you kind of need that. That's like a function of just, you know, belief in the space. And I think that's great to kind of have new people in the industry. Um, the other thing that's striking every time I go to a tech conference in Europe is just there is no domestic technology industry. And Mike, we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, I feel like Michael and I and probably you guys to some extent, like kind of starting our careers in California, 
most of the people we knew who had like made money, who had, you know, nice houses, like they either had worked in tech companies or had been acquired by tech companies or started a startup. And there was like a very robust ecosystem for us to go from tech company to startup or venture firm or raise capital and kind of like go on that journey ourselves. There really is nothing of that same version in Europe. There's no large tech companies. There's no, there's something, there's some, but there's no real domestic startup industry. You know, I feel like if you ask, you know, an average person in, you know, a millennial in France, that's probably, you know, a young guy like us, like, you know, how did your friends get wealthy? They would, they wouldn't say technology. They would say crypto. Like for them, crypto is like the Super Bowl of everything. It's not as much about kind of like the Y Combinators or like the raising venture money. Like crypto is kind of the be all end all. And I thought the attendance at ETC kind of bore that out. But also you have kind of like this like cryptographer cyberpunk vibe that you don't really get in the US. Maybe maybe it's a little bit more present in New York, but like it, it, it does feel like there's more of like a emotional commitment to the ideology of crypto just because that's been the centerpiece of, you know, young people making money, young people building things. Um, and, you know, I, I look at like the OGs that we kind of, you know, met or saw around there, you know, Constantine from Lido, um, he's Eastern European, you have Rune, you know, he's from, I think, Denmark, Copenhagen, uh, Kane, a little bit different context, but he's like from Australia and, and you know, is in Europe a bunch, but it's uh, it's not as American a, a, as a movement, especially in like the OG kind of centric circles. And I thought that was pretty interesting. So very bullish Europe, very bullish. ECC will be back. Um, definitely going to make it a cornerstone of our trips in the future. I have a thesis on that, which is that people who come into crypto in the US oftentimes come in it for the money right away. And so then when the money gets tough, like in a bear market, a lot of people get wiped away. But if you actually look at Europe and specifically Eastern Europe, so I, I first time I heard about Bitcoin, I was living in Budapest and it wasn't even introduced as a thing that you could make money on. Yeah, Mike knows this story. Um, it was basically the story was just like you, you know, my parent, you know, all these Hungarians, their parents lived under Soviet Union, communist regime, and they were used to like growing, uh, you know, hungry, 1950s, 1960s, horrible place to be after the yep. war. And, um, you know, if you go on like the trams, for example, in Budapest, nobody talks. And the reason nobody talks is because there's like their parents remember when there was like mics and video cameras that would be watching you. So the way it's they nasty. thought about Bitcoin and the way it was introduced is like self-sovereign money. It was very like ideological. So then when you go into, so if you come into the industry for an ideological reason, the, when, when a bear market happens, you it's the, the ideology hasn't changed at all. Whereas folks maybe who come in in New York or San Francisco, very, very volatile, uh, emotionally because you ride the volatility of the prices. Yeah. I, I had a, I did, I had lunch with like this crypto whale, uh, just won't name him, uh, for privacy sakes, but just even the way he was talking about kind of how he thinks about money and his his stack is very interesting. He's like, yeah, I have all my coins and then I have some stable coins and I'll diversify my stable coins at some point. But like, why would I ever sell my 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 coins? It's like Americans are usually just trying to get back to real dollars, but it, it does feel like there's more of the emotional commitment to the ideology, which is cool. Um, and even the characters, you know, like the the pink hair, the long dyed beard, you know, the cryptographers that are trying to make, you know, something private and secure to the nth degree. It's cool. I, I love having that in crypto. And I think the U.S. brings more of the consumer, more of the TradFi um, experience to it. But to your point, Yano, like when things get bad in the U.S., 
you can rotate to AI, you can rotate to, you know, building a consumer app, a fintech app, like you don't have to stay in crypto. Europe, like the options are a lot slimmer. And uh, yeah, for, for all of the beauty of Paris and what I thought was just like an absolute jumping conference, I looked at this Wall Street Journal article, you know, Paris house prices are down only for the past like 10 years. Like huh. there, there is no domestic tech industry that's kind of like pushing everything up. It's like only crypto that really is the wealth generation vehicle there. You know, there's, I was asking someone, I was like, how many, some guy from Spain, I was like, how many unicorns are there in Spain? He's like, well, there used to be one. It was the food delivery app. And we're not really sure if it's still a unicorn. So it's like, that, that's kind of what you're working with over there. It's just very different from the US where I think there's like 1200 unicorns, or at least there used to be. Hmm. I have a question on the content for you guys. Uh, if like the the Twitter talk was, you know, in the in the kind of recaps was like, oh yeah, everyone's building infrastructure, no apps. Everyone's building infrastructure. And I feel like that's a thing people like to say in, in all bear markets. I'm I'm sure that was true. I'm sure everyone was talking about infrastructure, not really the apps. Do you guys think that is a problem at this phase of the industry, or that's just look? That's that's where we're at. Is the infrastructure phase? I think there's. I think. It's probably it's not a problem, but eventually I think there's a middle ground. And one of the one of the things I kind of feel like about apps versus infrastructure is there's first of all, obviously the, there's a lag in between uh, infrastructure and apps where you actually need good infra to build the apps, and so it tends to lag like you know six or eighteen months or whatever it is. But the other thing is there's kind of this like chicken or egg problem when it comes to this, which is that in order to build good apps, you need infrastructure that'll support those apps. But ultimately, the infrastructure should be in service of the apps. Like you need an app that has product market fit that will tell the info guys like, hey, this is actually what I need to build. And what we're lacking is that one thing, right, that will like give the infrastructure providers. It's like they're trying. It's very exciting, right? There are all these different takes on infrastructure. Like just to give you a sense of the moment in time that we're in, there was a conference called uh, Modular Summit, which was awesome. It was great. But like. You know, that's literally, it's like the nerdiest thing ever, right? It's like, do you build a monolithic stack or modular stack and like switch components out? Like it just shows you the sort of moment in time that we're in right now. And I think what these guys are sort of lacking is like one, like, ah, this is, there was a great app. This was the stack that supported it. And like sort of this idea to rally behind that. Um, I think what you're starting to see is really good entrepreneurs building a product like an app and then supporting infrastructure around it. And you see that on the layer twos, so like ZK Sync and ZK Eras, like their version of the L2, but then they're going to build a stack that will allow different apps to build like their app specific environments with different modular components they could shift in. So it's kind of their bet that like, this is how we think it should be built. But like, by the way, here are all the components. And like, if you want to change some stuff, you could build it custom the way you need it too. Uh, Scott Sonardo, Argus Labs guy in gaming is actually very similar to this. He's got like a game. But then he's also building this kind of set of developer tools where it's like, this is kind of how I think the infrastructure should look, but there's enough flexibility where if you wanted to customize it, you could do that as well. So I kind of think it's like not a huge problem, but it definitely was very infra heavy. And to say the mm -hmm. obvious thing, we, you know, it would have been nice to actually see more app. More app you could make the argument Kane is doing the same thing in synthetics, right? With synthetic, the, you know, they've, they've built the protocol for you know, liquidity here. And then now they're also building Infinex. Yeah. yeah, you're not going to see a lot of app developers at the infrastructure conferences, though, just as a rule, you know, you're going to see them at the gaming conferences, you know, the DeFi people don't really get invited to the TradFi conferences. But like, you know, it's like, it's a it's a bit of uh, just, you're never really going to see the apps there. 
just because that's not who they're being built for. But I also think there's this other concept of, you know, would you call liquid staking an app? Would you call, you know, stable coins an app? Like I, w- I would probably call those like money apps in, in some mm-hmm. way. It's not going to look like one to one. I think there is like this prototypical, you know, we know what an app in Web 2 looks like and therefore it will exist in Web 3 uh, or it should at least. I think they're coming, but they're mostly going to look like games. But um, I feel like people want us to build like photo sharing on chain and that'll be like a killer app. And it's like, you know, it's just not really the form factor of the technology. But I, we, my, we see a lot uh, of apps getting funded. I will say that. Like we see a lot of infrastructure at the conferences, but there's a ton of games and weird consumer apps that are that are raising rounds. And I'm, I'm pretty confident they're coming. Yeah. They're definitely coming. I, I would also say, I think we're just at that point in the cycle where they either have been funded and they're building like there are tons of games that have been funded and are in our building but if you're starting a new game from scratch right now and you need to get some seed capital to get off the ground or you need to be able to build a, a team of 50 to build the game it's going to be incredibly difficult and we saw that this week with star atlas you know they announced their uh, I, don't, I don't know how many they announced in this specific reorg but they've they've dropped 75 percent of their staff and they're desperately looking for funding like the apps are coming but I think it's also just a terrible time to be raising for an app because you have to be able to prove success and you have to be able to prove usage to get the valuation that you had last time or to be able to raise any capital whatsoever. So I, I think it's also just like really simple. Infrastructure can get funded right now, whereas apps are having a tough time. Yeah, you might be right there. Another um, another take that I had as well, this is a little bit more on the... Um, I sort of kind of I sort of walked away from the conference thinking interop uh, interoperability was still a pretty big problem, uh, especially between it's like the good news and bad news, like different L2 ecosystems, like different stacks. What it sounded like from a lot of these guys who are building these protocols is that there are two problems, which is one, there's not an agreed upon set of standards. It's hard to agree upon that set of standards because everyone's built their own and it's like, well, if we're going to use one, it should be mine. So there's this sort of strategic incentive not to do that. But then also because in order for there to be a set of standards that everyone agrees on, there probably needs to be some amount, like some, some something enshrined on Ethereum, actually, which just takes a really long time to do. But the good news is that interoperability seems to be solved within these layer twos, which is like a ZK stack, like all of these different um, app chains that will like hyper chains or whatever it's called that'll be built will be interoperable. Same thing with OP stack app chains, Arbitrum orbit chains, whatever it is. So that was kind of good news. But the big friction in between the lack of interoperability between big L2 sort of roll up environments is that market makers and builders are going to be the ones that kind of step in and abstract away that complexity. Um, so you can uh, see uh, it. Like, I don't know. I, I thought that Chainlink CCIP was a pretty huge announcement. I mean, that that it is exactly getting at the, the problem of how do you build a cross bridge messaging layer between, you know, an OP stack versus a ZK stack versus ETH L1. Uh, I mean, to go back to it, I think Synthetics is going to be one of the first to use that protocol and you're able to transform, you know, Mint natively on ETH L1 and on uh, OP right now, which is the the platforms that they they work on. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I thought I thought there was some cross-chain messaging that came out um, that I was excited to see at least. I think there is. Cool. I was I was there for for the announcement. Like we've held Chainlink forever, and uh, we've been waiting for it to get past kind of just like price feeds and and onto. I I guess that's like a 
a broader theme for all of the OGs, the projects that are like doing well, that have like real usage is like, there's kind of this conception of, you know, just to borrow from maker, like end game for everyone else. Like it feels like CCP is the end, CCIP is the end game for Chainlink. It feels like Infinex and all these front ends are the end game for synthetics. It feels Uniswap like X. Right. Uniswap X. It feels like people kind of like, you know, put the final chapter on the table or maybe not the final chapter, but like, you know, the, the bridge that would lead them there. And at least for Chainlink, it was like I was uh, there with Sergey and, and Kane before before the announcement. But it was kind of just like this feeling of like, you know, finally, like it's, you know, and, and it, it makes sense for Chainlink. It's like the Internet of Contracts. There's going to be a thousand L2s. It doesn't really make any sense. Like you want to know where everything is living. You should connect it. Be blockchain agnostic like they already have all these tie ins. Um, and so I, I think like the winners are just going to really compound their advantages here. I'm a little bit more suspect on like the newer infrastructure. I'm sure that things like Espresso and Suave and the monolithic stack are, are very interesting, but like they're playing catch up to a large degree. Um, uh, the other takeaway I had just from everything is like, there's going to be so many interesting things that you can do with your ETH. You know, you can stake it, you can put an eigenlayer, you can, you know, in the future stake it with Espresso or stake it with Suave or like there's going to be more restaking systems. Like, you know, it does feel like there's just a lot there with ETH in a way that in previous years, it was not as ETH centric. It was like, go to Solana, go to AVAX, go to Luna, go to Anchor, you know, whatever. So it was, it was cool to see that. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think I'm actually pretty starting to get kind of bullish on the DeFi 1.0, like OG guys. Actually, there's a funny, I think we're within one week of when, remember when DGen yeah. Spartan started that like Dude, three right. years? August 2nd, 2023. He started in November, which was like six months early before, like DeFi went up like 10x before, like, you know, the bear market started. But I was just like, fuck, you know, <laughs> this guy's calling it. And he knows what he's talking about, too. I was like, this is this is probably not good on a long term time horizon. And a lot of, needed to be fixed in DeFi. And, you know, everyone was just incredibly just cash flow negative the economics were upside down but you now you look at the og protocols and it's like they're fixing it you know, no, like. it, fi fixing or it or, or fixed you know like yeah. snx like did a 500 million dollar 600 million dollar day the past couple days if you stake snx you're earning 30 percent apy like that's a real cash flow protocol makers spitting off i think like 100 million in earnings lido is close to 100 million of arr and like they added i think I think it was, yeah, the 25th, they added 100,000 ETH into their liquid staking protocol in one day. So, like, these things are all working. And then you That's look wild. And, like, it's wild. wild. Like, they're growing so quickly or they're already so profitable. And, like, again, if you were dropped in crypto and you didn't know anything and you were told to point to the endogenous profit centers, they would be liquid staking, derivatives, and stable coins. And that's where, like, the OGs have really prospered. And it feels like there's a lot of room to run. And then kind of, like... You know, there's Uniswap too, but then beyond that, it's like there's a big distance between one and two in each of those categories. I, I would say I would add to that spot exchange, just historically. Yeah, that, that's Uniswap, but yeah, like exactly. even Uniswap has this new endgame. Right. Uniswap's yeah. kind of crushing it, actually. I think they have like all the layers of the stack. It looks like they're trying to do. It's like they've got the front end and they've got the consumer wallet. Then they've got Uniswap X, which is the aggregator. Then they've got Uniswap V4, which is the liquidity layer. Right. It's like the only the only yeah. thing they need. And I actually do wonder if they've thought about this is the settlement layer uh, below it, which would be their own 
chain or their own roll up or something like that. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's V5. That's got to be right. Yeah. But like, dude, they're, they're kind of, yeah, it's been, they're the winners, the winners are keeping on winning. And like, I remember in 2016, I was like, there's literally no shot. We're going to be trading Bitcoin in three or four years. Like the market's totally going to change. Like ETH probably is going to get knocked out. It's like, just like it's the same ones. And Michael and I talked about this with Apple where it's like, if you wanted to play like the iPhone revolution and all the apps, like what, what should you have done with, with, you know, knowledge of hindsight, probably just buy Apple. The math, the math is from the, from the time that the iPhone was announced until today, Apple has done a 65 X. There, there's no series of one to two venture funds over that period of time that have also done a 65 X. When, when was the iPhone? It was announced in, I think, March of 20, 2007, launched in June or July of 2007. That's crazy. So 15 years or 16 years, it's 65X. When I was in like sixth grade, my dad was like, I want to get you into investing. So you pick a stock, <laughs> pick a stock and I will buy that for you and we can track it together. And the iPod had just come out, came out and I was like, I want to buy Apple. And my dad yeah. was like, all right, we'll buy you some Apple stock. But he thought it was overvalued, and he bought. No. Like, yeah, yeah. He bought like polymer, like like Rochester polymer or something. Um, it, it was, I'm sure that that, that boy ripped. Don't sleep yeah, on Rochester yeah. polymer. Yeah. When you when you're looking when you're like you know I'm sure you didn't know this at age whatever age you were when you tried to buy Apple with with your pops, but like when you're thinking about something that can you know literally change the structure of you know the human fabric optimizing for like price slippage or like is this is the rsi oversold or like you know like just fucking buy it i remember we had um when i was in college freshman year this guy came in and he big like new york hedge fund manager and uh someone was like where do you get your like info like what's the best source of info on on like how you like what like do you read research or whatever he goes you know what's best source of alpha my daughter he goes you know what i bought <laughs> i bought Apple. When my daughter started and all of her friends Dude. started requesting Apple, uh, the iPhone. You know what else? I bought Snapchat, uh, or I invested in the in the, the like second round of Snapchat when everyone started like using Snap. And he just had like five of those examples. I've got that exact story. There's a guy named Barry Eggers who is a partner at Lightspeed uh, for a, a number of years. I don't know if he's still there. His 15 year old daughter went to St. Francis High School here in the Bay Area, and she and all of her friends just became obsessed with Snapchat right when it launched, I think in 2012 or 2013. And he basically, her, his daughter comes to him and says, you need to look at this. You need to invest in this. And so that's how Lightspeed did the seed round. Coincidentally, the endowment for that high school put in, I think, $25,000 at the, the seed seed round, like the initial capital that came in. And it like was on the cap table when they went public. Pretty when crazy. was Snap founded? 20, 2011 or 2012. I think they started working on it in 2011 and then founded in 2012. Just to call it, you know, it's been now over a decade without a new consumer entrant that has had staying power or scale. I have, an, I have another crypto question to tie back to ECC for a second in crypto. Um, Mike, you were mentioning like one of your takeaways was uh, interoperability will, will work, but it won't be like on chain basically it'll be market makers and, and funds become the main bridges in crypto can you like can you just expand on that i had um 
Yeah, this is actually, Michael, you mentioned this in Uniswap. Uh, Uniswap X and the the connective tissue in between different chains is these market makers that like there's some sort of there's an RFQ sort of model where actually the Brian I'm gonna blank on his last name the founder of Layer Zero um, mm-hmm. but he had a great mm-hmm. quote like bridges solve an inventory problem which is you want to do something on chain A uh, like move something on chain A or transact on chain B which sounds a lot like market makers, right? Like they warehouse risk and they manage inventory and like that's how they make their money. And the a lot, there's like three big forces I you can kind of see they're driving towards like a, frankly a huge bull market for centralized builders and um and market makers to abstract a lot of these problems away. One is like the way that there could be inoperability between different layer 2 ecosystems is shared sequencers, but sequencers are just pipes. They're just like they're really good for inclusion. So they can sequence, but they don't, they're not stateful. They don't actually execute transactions and they aren't aware in order to like really get the full benefits of interoperability. You need a very large, uh, expensive builder to sort of plug in and execute these transactions. And then it would actually be a really useful tool. So there's an incentive for like an SCP or someone to do that. And then there's um, the proliferation of these, like is actually CalSwap. That was kind of the first, these intense space mm-hmm. decks designs. There's CalSwap and Uniswap X. And the end game of Intense is like what Anoma and like Chris Goes is building. But the in the more intermediate, basically what they're saying is like, hey, instead of like, if I want to do a transaction that has multiple different steps, I should just be able to express the end outcome. And then I'm going to farm that out to a whole bunch of different sophisticated on-chain actors that will then go and execute that against some, you know, best execution sort of benchmark or something like that. And they will then manage the complexity of interacting on different chains. So like there's a big incentive because Uniswap X and CalSwap exist for these like solvers or fillers or, or things like that. And this is, there was another one that Vitalik explained. He gave a big talk on um, builders and why we need them. There's some something, he's, he called it like aggregating proofs, right? Like he's very obviously bullish on like ZK tech. Once you like make a proof about one thing, you can aggregate all of those into like one thing you can have many many different layers of proofs and the end end state is like one relatively computationally expensive um proof but you can also like it's not enormously variable based on the amount of like roll-up proofs into that so it sort of shifts the cost structure of transactions and it's being higher fixed cost which is good it's cheaper overall but it's a higher fixed cost thing that's good for again big builders um so that was kind of my takeaway is if you like I actually don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because the, the that's the whole reason you have PBS. You've separated the proposers from the builders. So I think it's a pretty acceptable compromise actually to give users a much better experience uh, while we sort out the technical stuff. But that was a takeaway for me. Hmm. I don't know what you guys think. Sorry, that was a bit of a long I, I, I think uh, the thing that we'll be able to do cross-chain the best comes down to two variables. One is just sort of like a table state. You have to have native minting on each ecosystem. You have to be able to say this is this is canonical USDC on Avalanche, on base level ETH and L2 ETH. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to have to happen across every asset that you really want to have cross-chain functionality. And then the second variable is going to be fees. And if you're going through a market maker or you know some third party to be able to facilitate that transaction, there's obviously going to be some fee that's associated with it. Um, this is actually where I think cross-chain communications or messaging protocols, if given the ability to have native mint functionality for those assets across those two different ecosystems, 
you're burning on one end and minting on the other. And so long as you trust in that that network, that in- information protocol, you can have lower fees, I would say, than someone who's having to do inventory management across, like, you know, if you've got a market maker across uh, Avalanche and Ethereum, it means that they have to have, you know, enough assets on both sides that they're holding onto to be able to facilitate that transaction, which means that, you know, their cost of capital is going to be a lot higher than just a, a messaging protocol. Um, and so we're not there yet with the messaging protocols, but I, I would say that, you know, moving in that direction is probably where I see things going. Um, but yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, in the short term, like I've been waiting for the, I don't know, let's say the Coinbase ETH to optimistic ETH bridge, you know, one for one swap, just like you have with USD and USDC on Coinbase for, you know, a year now. Where, where's that? I agree. The uh, I, I agree with all that, Mike. One thing I would say, though, if there's a big hedge fund that like a bunch of flow ended up moving through, basically, you could find ways of monetizing that, I'm sure. Like totally in pretty creative ways. Um, yeah. Like one one of the big problems for a lot of like on-chain DEXs is like the price discovery happens on Binance and ETH has 12 second block times. And there's this problem where all the prices are basically stale and LPs are subsidizing an enormous amount. They're basically just making bad trade after bad trade after bad trade every 12 seconds. And the fees don't really make up for the amount of loss they incur doing that, which is a problem. And I, 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 I think it will get solved. I think price discovery will move on chain. And once that happens, it will solve an enormous amount of other infrastructure challenges that are just occurring because of finance. And that actually could be a silver lining of, frankly, the SEC's like over exuberant like take on Binance, like probably isn't good for the industry for Binance to be what it is, I would guess. But <laughs> I, I think price discovery, I think price discovery starts to move on chain once you have a structural bid on chain. And that's just, you know, a way of saying once token buybacks start of a lot of these protocols that are that are profitable, you know, the Uniswap fee switch is like step one, but then actually either buying the tokens back or giving it to the fee people on chain is the other once that happens, I think most of this volume is going to go on chain, at least for those tokens. And then it's really not going to go back. Should we talk about Worldcoin a little bit? Let's talk it. Let's talk about the orbs. Yeah, no, did you scan your eyeball? I scanned. Wow. So, did so you planned it, didn't well. you? I did, but I was wearing contacts. And so they were, you know, not happy. With oh, that doesn't. Happy. Oh, wait. Actually, that might have been why mine didn't go through. I, I did scan and I was wearing contacts and it like was very janky. It didn't really work. Yeah. I had a did protective claim- shield on. Yeah. <laughs> you had your mask on? Uh, did yeah, you claim your... Yeah, your fingers crossed. Yeah, you're getting your iris scan. Yeah, claim. Yeah, of course. <laughs> minute. It's, uh, it's wildly bullish for optimism that they chose that chain. It just yeah. also shows how early we are in like the, the L2 like wars, skirmishes, whatever you want to call them. But... You know, you get one app that's hot, and all of a sudden you have the same amount of transactions as Arbitrum, and you close the gap entirely. It, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So Optimism just passed Arbitrum, I think, in daily users for the first time in several months, right? Today or yesterday? Was it users or transactions? Or transactions? Transactions. The context for Worldcoin is like it's a what it is is it's a proof of personhood system. Vitalik actually wrote a really good piece about that this week. And there's like kind of different ways of doing that. And there's reasons for doing that. Like you could do Worldcoin as a biometric sort of solution where there's a set of public and private keys that get generated. You There are these orbs that literally just, I guess, exist in various places around the world. And you can go and scan 
and it will match up. And you have to, at the same time you scan your irises, you also have to present your app with your public key. And then a hash will get created that's entered into the database. Uh, so what it says is that it doesn't store your actual iris data, but you know it's linked to that specific hash, and then you can prove if you know that unique hash is is in their database. Um, and that's the way that it works. There, there are other there are other methods, uh, which is based off like a social graph and a vouching sort of system, where you know Alice and Bob are real. You know Mike gets added to the chain. Alice and Bob are like, yeah, we believe Mike's real. And like, by the way, here's a penalty in case we're like lying about you. And there's some sort of challenger sort of system. Uh, there there are like various pros and cons to each one of these things. I think Worldcoin specifically has been. Um, there's been some pushback because of the token allocation they had. There's like 20% of the tokens were allocated towards investors and the entrepreneurs of the system. The problem with hardware is that there could, it's really hard to prove that there isn't a backdoor. You know, you just can't really prove that. Um, and I think understandably the human element of like, you know, scanning your eyes just feels very 1984. <laughs> you know, I, I just, it's hard for me to, you can explain it all you want to me, but I still get a little heebie jeebied out by it. So, um, I don't know. What do you guys? What did you guys think about the whole project? I went into Worldcoin's office in February or, or March and met with Alex, their co-founder, to like get the get the full pitch. Um, it's uh, it's something that we do every day already. Um, so pr proof of personhood is like a very impor important thing that we already do every day for a couple of things, right? Like if you've ever signed up for a CFI exchange. Like, remember, like you take a picture of your license, oh, yeah. hold it up to your face and then like send it over to like Binance where they're, I'm, I can assure you they're not keeping that thing safe. Like that you, is, you have to write like the proof of life as well on the piece of paper. Today's yeah, date. literally today's <laughs> date. Yeah. That's proof of humanity. Uh, you're, you're, you're moving too quickly on online and you have to like fill out a captcha. That's proof of humanity. Um, you join if you ever like raise money and maybe you need to like get a big wire or you're sending a big wire or something like that and you have to jump on a call with someone and they have to like verify you as they send the wire proof of humanity so like proof of humanity is something that you have to do every single day um and then, and then the last one is your your iphone right like you scan this is more like less proof of humanity but more just like privacy and security i don't use the the touch thing on my iphone anymore i like probably 90% of people just use face scan and I'm sending that over to Apple. And that's so like, we're doing that every day. Basically the thing with proof of humanity is that it's not something that occurs that often. It's like, you don't have to do a captcha online that often. You don't have to do a, um, you know, send a, send a picture of your license to an exchange that often. What, uh, Alex, the, uh, world coin founder laid out for me is like a world where you have to do that hundreds of times a day, basically. And, uh, if you think about GBT, so we're like GBT, so they, so Sam Altman's the co-founder of WorldCoin. He's also the co-founder of ChatGBT, uh, OpenAI, which founded ChatGBT or which created ChatGBT. ChatGBT right now, you put in like a prompt and spits out a thing. What ChatGBT will eventually look like is not just uh, like giving read access, but uh, write access to your computer. And so what that looks like is imagine ChatGBT 6, for example, or ChatGBT 7. What you're going to do is you're going to give write access to your computer. And you say right now you're not going to do that, but eventually you're going to do it because all your colleagues are doing it and they have a huge competitive advantage on you. It's like they're all taking steroids and you're not. So you're going to take the steroids and it, you're going to basically be able to put in, for example, hey, pull up MetaMask. I, uh, I know that GMX is launching a token. I want to farm GMX. Go, go, uh, go use the 10K in my MetaMask account and do the optimal farming strategy on GMX 
to farm for tokens that I think are coming in three months. And it's just going to do it for you. Or you, you put in a little prompt, hey, go email Vance that I need to push this. Boom. It's going to pull up Gmail for you and write the whole email. And um, when that when that world happens, it, it's very tough to know online who's a human. There's no way to know who's a human and who's not a human. And WorldCoin's trying to solve that problem. There's a story I heard. Um, I think it was a, a couple of Stanford researchers who um, it wasn't the AI model that ChatGPT runs on um, because it has the ability to go off and, and actually uh, prompt different things in a computer system. And so they're they're testing this new model, kind of similar to what you're talking about, where it has access of the computer. Um, and the researchers say, uh, here here is an account, and I don't know if it was a bank account or if it was a brokerage account, um, but it was, uh, here's an account with $10,000, go off and make as much money in the stock market as possible. And that was what the, the uh, prompt was. The AI went off, uh, signed up for a brokerage account. To get the brokerage account, it had to go through some CAPTCHAs, wasn't able to get through the CAPTCHAs. So it went on to TaskRabbit to hire somebody to get through the CAPTCHAs for them. The task rabbit person even said, how do I know that you're not an AI? How do I know that you're not an NPC? And the, the AI literally said, I'm, I'm like, vi- I have visual disabilities. I can't do this myself. I need help doing it. Convinced the person on task rabbit to go through the captures for them and started trading stocks. Like yeah, that, that's that, the world that's, that is no 100% locked in, in my mind. That's the world we live in. You are going to, everyone's going to have an AI assistant and that AI assistant is going to run a whole team of other AI assistants. Yeah. So like my AI assistant, I'll be like, I want to go build a website and they will go reach out to the other AI assistants that go build the website for them. That is a 100% fact, the world we're going to live in. And in that world, we need like proof of humanity. I do see the picture for this. Now they, they really fucked up the launch, like the token total botch calling the orb. An orb is like so cool, but so dystopian, like so many, <laughs> I would have, if I was running the marketing there, I would have done it completely differently. Putting the first things in like Nigeria and like, I was like, come on guys, like you're just like horrible, horrible marketing and comms there. But I do understand the problem that they're trying to solve. The, the problem is absolutely gargantuan. There's no question yeah. about it and absolutely necessary. It's just the question of the implementation and frankly, timeline. Like when are we actually going to need this? You know, well, what? you already need it. You already need it. It's like, Think about crypto. Think about crypto. I mean, so you don't need what we're talking about with ChatGPT and stuff like that, but like think or GPT six and seven. But think about crypto airdrops for token distributions. Um, yeah, you can do uh, civil like, resistance with it. I get that civil resistance yeah. protection against bots, like just an, a better alternative to to captchas. Um, like it's there are some short term applications. You know what? I think Yeno, this might have come up on the podcast that you did with Chow, but this feels really bearish for the Web two business model. Right? Wasn't this part of partially why Elon limited the amount of like posts you could view? Because now there's just going to be exponentially more web traffic because of these AIs, but and that yep. puts an additional load on the servers. It's cost, but then advertisers aren't going to pay for AI right. traffic. I mean, that's brutal for their model. One of the interesting takes that I heard about AI is that um, it effectively structurally increases the costs costs of, of basically every application that runs on it. So like, you know, imagine you're Twitter and you want to, you know, make your site AI capable. We can debate what that means. Maybe it's, you know, having an AI write your post for you. Maybe it's having a chat GPT plugin in the app. 
every time you write a query, every time you ask it something, that costs a shitload of money. And there is like there's a run on GPU right now in Silicon Valley. Like people are trying. It's like you know selling drugs. People are trying to find these. I think it's the HN 100s from Nvidia and get them stood up. But like it's gotten so expensive that like it's become prohibitive from a cost perspective to build an AI app. So that's one side of like the the balloon getting squeezed. The other one is just like you kind of need to put up these guardrails because every AI application is just going to be constantly trying to scrape your site for more and more data. Your server is getting pinged, your costs going up. It's like it structurally decreases the margins of basically all of these Web2 tech companies. And so that's not that bullish, you well, know, structurally. <laughs> Landed the plane there, Vance. You're absolutely right. It is not that like, bullish. <laughs> AI is going to do great for all the Web two companies. It's like, is it really? Are we? Is, are they going to grow that much faster? Maybe the bot traffic will. The the big one, and oh god, I think I'm a the pricing. I can't remember. Did anybody? Does anybody remember the initial cost that Microsoft came out on their earnings call for Copilot? It was like three times analyst estimates. I think it was $30 per user per month, and it was supposed to be like $10. And I think that that is lending credence to what Vance is saying. It's like their cost structure, which they need to maintain their margins on, like they're not going to be able to make money. And I think there's going to be a demand at $30 a month. But you really do have to change the business model of consumer applications in Web2 from being a, you know, you're if you're not paying for it, you are the product. Well, that advertising-based business model is not going to work in an AI-dominated world. Let's just, let's just play this out a little bit more. So, like, do certain business models not work in the age of AI? So, like, like what would be the ARPU of, of uh, you know, a, a, a user on Twitter that's being served ads? Like, what do you think that would be? 10 bucks a month? In more, the US, more? it's 12 to 14. Right, 12 to 14. And and Twitter is $8 a month, you know, on the subscriber side. Like, maybe this kind of makes the advertising model, maybe the advertising model doesn't have enough juice in it to overcome the additional costs, you know, provided by AI and AI-powered data scraping and AI-powered applications. Like, it kind of throws a little bit of that into just the air and like you look at snapchat and that thing can't even turn a profit with the advertising volume and, and they have a chat gpt plugin and i'm sure people are going to start scraping their website for chat gpt mm. data it's like it really does call it poses a lot of interesting questions as to like what do these business models look like long term and subscription may be the only way that you can like really control and scale your revenue to the, these new costs. I mean, think about it this way. The gold standard, and this is probably a year or two outdated, but the gold standard is Facebook for North American users, and it was $20 a user per year. No so, shot enough for AI, you know, if that's really no way. server costs. And just no, you're going you're gonna to have to double that. I have a question for you guys. You know, my understanding of the the reason there was the advertising-based business model for a while is like you people in the early days of the internet were gonna like pay to go online. That was just a complete non-starter. Do you think now, if there was a switch to a subscription business model, like generally across social media sites, do you think the majority of people would pay? Majority, no, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. So Snap mm. has three million, I think, paying users. So like, I, I'm a Snapchat Plus subscriber somehow. Just because uh, I wanted to use that says a lot about you. I think we need to hear <laughs> more about that. Kid, yeah. you know, I'm trying to trying to stay young, but uh, three million is not enough. They've got like six hundred million users, seven hundred, something like that. Not that many DAUs, though. Right, like two fifty million DAUs. It's like one percent penetration of their daily actives. Right. 
And and a lot of these things were in trouble already. Like I was looking at the Snapchat earnings, which just absolutely were the opposite of Meta, and just it just feels like a buy quarter thing where they just get smacked. So they're a eighteen billion dollar company. They've admitted nine billion in new stock since launching in stock based compensation. They've never turned a profit. Um, and there's really no path for them to increase revenue either. They're not really growing as fast as they used to. There's really no new business models and their costs are increasing because of AI. And, you know, mm-hmm. the revenue is decreasing because of Apple squeezing them on the other side. As, as a recipient of said stock-based compensation, I think that everything is totally fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll lay this economic driver on top of a social driver that I think is going to drive this too. I think that if you talk to like Gen Z and the youth of today, I the think youth? there's um, the youths. Um, I think people are driving into, uh, there's a desire to like move back into like deeper, more private spaces online. And if you, uh, if you like, you know, how much time do you guys spend on Telegram chats today versus how much time you're spending on Telegram chats versus like even two or three years ago? Like a lot of my day is inside these Telegram chats yeah. um, or, or Slack, right? Or, or I don't use Discord, but like, you know, a lot of time is spent in these like kind of more private channels um, versus on social. Whereas like my whole life used to be on like Instagram and Facebook seven years ago and stuff. So, and I think like if you take AI, if you think about what AI will do to social media, the like impending signal to noise ratio, there's gonna be like a crisis of signal to noise, I think on these social platforms. And I think it'll continue to drive people into these more like private, private spaces. When's the last time you guys went on Facebook.com? A decade ago. I, I, sh- I shut mine down like eight years ago, I think, or six years ago. I went on it like two months ago. I, there's like <laughs> literally three times for every single organic post, there were two ads. Yeah, and it's, it's a really uncomfortable feeling. Like I'm just looking at my Twitter right now, and I'm sure you guys have this as well, but my replies are just like shitloads of bot responses, scams, phishing, you know, Ukrainian Russian women. It's like, wait, what the fuck is going on here? This just like makes me not want to spend time here or like figure out a Telegram chat that's a little bit higher signal or a Discord. But it, it I, think just, next, like, I, I think next up, uh, you're going to have Elon limit the number of tags you can put into a tweet unless you're uh, blue check mark. That's it, my it's, it's that's wild my how clairvoyant he's been on this stuff. Like, sure, yeah. I, I don't think the delivery was perfect, but like he kind of called all of this happening. He hasn't fixed any of it yet, but. It does feel like this is the direction of travel. A lot Do you think more. maybe he just kind of came in and I don't know what his you know original impetus was for really buying Twitter, but he is for all his faults. Like he's definitely good at just being like, this is the problem and like forcing uncomfortable things forward. It feels like so. Yeah, I feel like he did kind of get that. Do you think? Imagine building rockets with him. That would be just another experience. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I'd want that on it. <laughs> like, I, I would be, I'd be like a pretty brutal couple of years, to be honest with you. But yeah, I guess they did build the rockets. So I'm, I'm really happy that he owns Twitter and that he's able to disseminate free speech and crypto and openness. And I don't like the X brand, but I, I feel like even in time, that'll probably be optional. This is kind of a funny aside. Uh, X is what he's been trying to call his financial services platform since 1996. He started, he started X.com, for those that don't know, uh, in 1996, which then later merged with Peter Thiel's Confinity to create PayPal before it was sold to eBay. And then as he was leaving, part of his 
uh, severance package is he renegotiated with eBay to buy back the X.com brand, and he's literally been sitting on it since. And let me, I'll add to that. He named his kid X. He <laughs> called it. He called it Space X and yeah. Tesla Model X. Dude love. Dude loves X. <laughs> I just like this yeah, I mean, our office is kind of near the uh, the Twitter building downtown. I, I drove past on the day that the uh, the Twitter was being taken down. It really did feel like the visceral end of an era because Twitter was like kind of like one of the prototypical early tech companies that came out. And there Especially is in San Francisco, like Twitter, I mean, Twitter users were just like SF tech bros, like tweeting what they yep. had for breakfast. Like it was, was also a, Twitter was Twitter's the first major company in San Francisco, first major tech company in San Francisco because of Jack. Right. And and then everybody followed. And there he was with a with a crane or whatever that was, just <laughs> wild. Ugh. I know. What a guy. Elon's, Elon's very good at getting people to talk about his stuff. You know, in one way or another. It it is like it's not it, overdone comparison, but this is what Trump was good at too. Like you were just always talking about that guy. And if you've ever tried to like put something out into the world, you know how hard it is to just get people to care at all. He has this sort of ability to just like, he just knows how to shine a flashlight of attention on stuff. Even this X thing, you know, we're talking he about was, it. Did you, okay. So I went on to the Twitter spaces on Saturday night as he was literally like, whoever's got a good idea, we'll implement it tomorrow. Well, <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he was on the Twitter spaces and he was playing Diablo in the background. The whole time where he was like, all right, we're changing the logo. He's like, yeah, I've been playing Diablo for the last two hours. I'm probably going to play for another 30 minutes and then go to bed. <laughs> like, he literally. One of us. Exactly. I think he, I think he really just like doesn't give a shit. And he also just wants to do whatever is the most comical because he thinks it's entertaining and fun. And I honestly think that that's probably like where the impetus to buy Twitter came from. Eventually it was like, okay, well, we should actually probably do this. But at first he was probably like, wow, wouldn't it be funny if I did that? What a, what a G. Let's, uh, let's bring it back to, to crypto here a little bit and just talk about this sort of battle that's playing out on Capitol Hill. So there have been a couple of big, uh, very relevant bills for, well, actually, even to set the context before that, it does feel like there's a little bit of finally resistance moving in the direction of crypto in Washington. This was after like an onslaught of different, I mean, what have we been talking about these enforcement actions for the past couple months against Binance, against Coinbase? There was a concern that all of these, uh, you know, many of the the crypto assets out there are going to get labeled securities. And what it, it sort of uh, subjectively feels like, especially after the XRP summary judgment, that the tide is beginning to move in the other direction. And this has been a totally partisan issue. Like this has been typically, you know, the Republicans being relatively pro-crypto, anti-SEC, and the Democrats being anti-crypto, pro-SEC. And now you're starting to see some prominent Democrats come out and say, Gary Gensler has gone too far, to paraphrase. So I mean, isn't it crazy that the Republicans are now the progressives trying to get new laws and regulations passed and, and the Democrats are the obstructionists? Wild. Yeah. The, the uh, so yeah, we're members of the Blockchain Association. They so you know we we kind of like uh, worked with them and everybody else who's a member to to work on Capitol Hill related issues. Um, <clears throat> the the stuff that's going on right now and where things land are working their way through is just frankly like as all of this happens in negotiation, 
and it's people wanting to get one word changed or a sentence added or or you know rejected and there's amendments to it it's like back to civics 101 of like how a bill gets made but i i do think you know the sentiment is um that yes it's partisan there is now sort of some contingent across the aisle to get some stuff done um but most likely it looks like it's not going to go through in this congress and the ribble case is great like that gives us a feather in our cap it's the new standard for certain aspects of regulations relating to crypto not for everything as everybody wants to go off and project but frankly there just wasn't enough time in between the ripple case happening and these bills being drafted for them to take a huge effect in the in the creation and and you know what is getting put into the bills and so i think that's where there's actually some just like issues like this stuff is happening on a day by day night by night basis in terms of amendments and negotiations and and so my, my hope is that you know probably this stuff gets far enough to where uh, it, it already has so the fit bill which is the financial innovation and technology for the 21st century act it's the first time that crypto has ever been in a standalone bill and not stuffed into some omnibus whatever the inflation reduction act um, and it's a standalone bill. It has passed two committees in the House and is going to go to a House vote on the floor in after the August recession or after the August recess. And that is a huge, huge moment for for us. Will it get through the Senate? Probably not. But you know, as the tide shifts in Washington in terms of who's in office and who is not, there's more likelihood that this stuff will will come with more, you know, negotiations, amendments, and then it'll it'll have a new wind probably in a year or a year and a half. Um, so having like there's a ton of stuff going on with all these different bills, but what the the one that we think is is most exciting is the Fit Bill, which is used to be known as the Market Structure Bill. Um, it passed the House Financial Services Board or committee and the Ag Committee. Like it, it definitely has a lot of momentum. The interesting one is the stablecoin bill, um, which as of today seems to be uh, met with vitriol, as uh, as was described uh, in committee chambers, um, where the White House seems to come in, and seems to have come in and basically put their foot down and said, no way. Um, uh, we, we were actually thinking that it would be the opposite, that the stablecoin bill, pretty mundane, pretty standard, just basically provides safeguards and assurances for centralized operators of stablecoins. Uh, you know, reading the tea leaves or according to some rumors, uh, White House slash the Treasury came in and said, you got to stop it. So that's kind of where we are. Hmm. Why do you think they did that? CBDC. Uh, I, I think a lot of people uh, were surprised at how many Democratic votes the market structure bill got. Hmm. And so there was probably like, a, oh, shit, you know, we should really put our foot down on this other thing. Even though Maxine Waters and McHenry look like they've agreed on something. Um, it looks like this is just like the political pushback that comes with more votes going to the market structure bill than previously thought. But as Michael said, this is like pretty bullish for the entire space. Like this is going to be the legal framework that exists when a bill gets pushed through. And if there's a change in the Senate, there's a change in, you know, the uh, presidential, uh, you know, who's president. Like these are all things that will happen pretty short order in, in our opinion. But like until that happens, we've got Grayscale, which looks pretty good. Ripple, which, you know, changed a lot of things for the industry and a general feeling that the courts have the backs of the people who are not, you know, doing things with malintent. So I, I, feels good, honestly. It, 
just I, I listened to a couple of the snippets of um, discussions and and conversation and points that were made yesterday in the House committee chambers. Um, Richie Torres out of the Bronx in New York has just been absolutely crushing it. Um, Democrat, um, super knowledgeable about the space, very pro the space. Um, and his perspective was was great, which is you've got on one hand the SEC and everybody saying that they have enough rules and regulations to go off and regulate this industry. But at the same time, you've got the largest what looks to be a crypto Ponzi scheme and fraud committed in the in in history of crypto. Um, you've got all these different regulations. They're, they're not winning all of the the uh, lawsuits that they're bringing uh, against the industry. Um, and there's just outright confusion. Meanwhile, you've got other jurisdictions, particularly if within Europe and Mika, MICA, um, which are providing safeguards and pass forward for how to regulate this industry. Um, and so I, I think that is going to be the sentiment. There are six Democrats on the House Financial Services Committee that voted for the FIT bill, the market structure bill. Um, and, and yeah, to Vance's point, I think people got you know, people that want to see crypto go away got nervous when they saw that vote outcome. So outside of just general sort of, um, you know, concern, I, why stable coins? So stable coins, I feel like are so obviously beneficial for U.S. interests. I just, I don't feel like that's a huge leap to understand. I mean, you've got this other sort of financial system, economy, pseudo, however you want to frame it. And the dollar purely from market forces, right? This is purely bottom-up, like needs, want-driven, is being adopted there at a rapid pace. And the U.S. was just like, no, thank you. We don't want to take this free option on being one of the, the guys, currency of this system. I, one of the Democrats who walked out, somebody asked him, why'd you walk out? And he was like, I was told to walk out. Like, you know, these people aren't thinking for themselves. It's just, uh, it's a political game, but I think it's being played in such a way that crypto eventually comes out on top. I wouldn't really like read too far into like the temporary holdup of the stablecoin bill. It could even really get done after the recess. You know, that's kind of like the the scuttlebutt. But it, like it's it's just it, it's you know the, these things go from like no, absolutely not. I heard some guy call this an unjust and cruel bill. <laughs> stablecoin bill like what an unjust and cruel bill and then made an amendment attempt to the same person made an amendment attempt to have a 128 120 day exploratory period for new regulations it's like dude we're talking about it right now <laughs> yeah I, I, I wouldn't i wouldn't place a lot of stock in the day-to-day -day stuff you know these are like the uh the regular season games and uh i think the playoffs are probably later this year slash next year uh, my guess is, well, as soon as December hits, it's uh, it is election season. My guess is, if it doesn't happen before then, it'll probably get pushed to the next Congress, which is actually a really good thing. Like, I, I think that having it get pushed um, probably will give us more time to circle the wagons, you know, get some more wins for the industry, uh, have a better understanding of where things stand, and it'll just be more evidence. You know, to, to Vance's point, which I totally agree with, is like we're going to be on the right side of regulatory history here. It's just we need more evidence to get more people on our side. We're moving the ball up the field to uh, use a football analogy, but I think we're in a good. I think we're in a good spot here. I'm I'm not too worried. I have a I have a 2024 question for you guys. If you are a one issue voter and crypto is your issue, uh, who is the number one president right now? Is it DeSantis you know, or you know, RFK or Trump? Well, you know Trump. the answer. 
Only Trump? one presidential candidate has multiple NFT collections along with his, you know, previous first lady. Um, I, I mean, this is with the context of like who's actually got a shot. Um, you don't think Trump and, has a shot? I think he's no, 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 no. He's saying no, Trump no, does no, have no. a shot. No, no. I, I think obviously RFK would be pro crypto. RFK would be uh, great. I would vote for RFK in a heartbeat. I just don't think that's going to happen. I just, there's not going to be a chance to, frankly. Um, I don't think Cornell West was president. I don't think we're going to have that happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the other interesting part is, you know, what whoever the Republican candidate is. Like, I, it looks like Biden is still going to be the candidate unless, you know, something pretty serious happens on the on the Democratic side. Um, but it will be really interesting, whoever the Republican nominee ultimately ends up becoming, who they build as their camp. Like, who's the running mate? Who are the people that are in support? Who are vying for potential cabinet positions or, or what have you? Like, there, there could be a, a groundswell of interest from some of the candidates that we're talking about and, and thinking about right now. Do you remember what 2020 felt like with the election? You know, everyone was very focused on the future. Everyone could see four years of what each candidate would look like. Like, it, it feels good that we're going to start thinking about the future again. The Republican debates are, I think, in two weeks, three weeks. And I think once that happens, that kind of kicks off, you know, people starting to think about the future. Man, I could not feel more differently about that. I am not excited <laughs> for 18 months of just every single fucking day just talking about the election. I, I feel like candidates like RFK have opened the Overton window for people to really think differently about what the future looks like. And it's not just like Trump versus Biden. It's like, who is this RFK guy? Like what? Like the vaccine? It is funny. Shit? I do feel like RFK is like this year's. Uh, oh my god, who's the AI? Ron guy? Paul, honestly. No, no, no. He's uh, the guy who's very scared of. Uh, he wanted UBI. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yang. No, he's way more no, credible no. than Andrew Yang. Yeah, it was Andrew Yang. I have a weird, I have a small issue that I would like to see, dude, I don't know, Vance, uh, Yano put this in my head actually before I went over to, to Europe, but the food over in Europe, like I, I had, you know, I had like a chocolate croissant every day, like to start every morning, I had chocolate croissant, okay, bro. Steaks, <laughs> yeah, and whatnot. Mike had like and seven felt, a day, just seven chocolate. I felt light on my feet. I felt light, light on my on feet, feet over there. You look, this, you look good. Thanks, buddy. I, you do too. I, thanks, but, bro. you know, in the U.S., like if I have like, you know, an extra thing of bread with lunch, I'm like. I'm obese you know? now. Afternoon. Yeah, I'm afternoon obese. Canceled. I'm obese. That's it. <laughs> know, yeah. It's afternoon like... cancel. I got to take a nap. We got to <laughs> fix this food over here. Um, so the, the, the cool conspiracy theory that I read uh, yesterday was that uh, Trump and RFK are like secretly teaming up and then RFK is going to be the FDA, head of the FDA. He already asked him to be the, the head of vaccines in, tw in 20... I'm, I, listen, listen, in 2017, I think it was 2017, when right after Trump got elected, he asked RFK if he wanted to take a, a health role within his, you know, within his administration. I, th I think the candidates are very interesting. I've been all over the map politically. I've voted uh, liberal for a long time, Republican a little bit, independent. I volunteered for Ron Paul when I was young. So like all the way from auditing Fort Knox to find out where the gold is to like more <laughs> centrist positions. I just think there's a lot of very interesting candidates in this in this election. And like, I'm hoping, you know, Yana, to your point that it's not going to be this like 
dragged through the mud. I guess with the court yeah. cases, it's going to be, but yeah. It's time to think well, about uh, the future again. The other one that I've started to listen to a little bit more of, do a little bit more research into is Vivek. And he is, I mean, he's 37 years old. Get that. Like he is basically our age. What's and the cutoff for president? 35. 35. And, <laughs> um, and he's, probably the high, year. <laughs> he's probably the highest IQ candidate that we would, we would potentially see. It's just, you know, that ability to have someone who's out of left field, you know, high IQ, high horsepower and not being an establishment person, I think is frankly what it is the Overton window shift that RFK has provided. Like it actually gives credence to some of these dark horse bets, which is great. Like we're actually having a conversation about it now. Cornell West is running green party. No labels is going to, it's kind of like, you know, you can kind of choose your own adventure, which is exciting in terms of on the, uh, at least for me, the mainstream candidates don't really appeal to me. I'll end up voting for one of them, but like, I will they get don't. to entertain different policies for a longer period of time, which is cool. Exactly. Yeah. It's Why like I this every year, though. It's always like this. I, oh, it's not. Come on. Literally, it was Trump against Jeb Bush in 2016. Yano's just not, not going to be able to talk about this outside of the office. <laughs> 18 months out, you have 20 candidates. Uh, every single time. And then it eventually gets narrowed down to like two on each side. And they're both going to be pretty institutional. And you're going to have DeSantis versus Trump and you're going to have Biden, Biden. And then we're going to spend a year. DeSantis is, DeSantis is toast. I don't, I don't think he's going to yeah, be a competitor. He, he didn't make it. But uh, Newsom, I would love if he got in, point. but he's the, a, uh, yeah. he's crypto. The DNC has already said that they will not be participating in any debates within dnc party members and against the rnc party member that is that's ridiculous wait no no biden trump debates ridiculous nope mike can't even bring himself to speak words i've just seen vivek on ramaswamy or whatever on twitter i haven't even looked into him at all to be honest but i uh maybe he could be a smart dude he's got some he's got some not so great perspectives but he's just very smart all right yeah get out there Yeah. Peace. I promise.